welcome to Reinventing Home, a podcast about home as the source of culture, creativity, and character. I'm your host, Valerie Andrews, and today our topic is the art of living in uncertain times. America is in transition morally, economically, and socially. We're facing the brutalities of climate change, racial injustice, and economic inequality. Many of us are experiencing a high level of fear and anxiety, a kind of daily dread that these problems are too big for us and we're no longer in control of our daily lives. The question is, how can we cope with this period of chaos and reorganization, and how is it calling us to stretch and grow beyond our ordinary limits? My guest today is James Hollis, who taught humanities for 26 years before becoming a noted Jungian analyst. He lives and works in Washington, D.C., and is the author of 16 books on depth psychology and finding meaning in modern life. His most recent book is Living Between Worlds, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. Jim, thank you for joining us for this conversation today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'd like to begin talking about the state of the world right now. America has been dealing with the pandemic and economic downswing, long-standing problems of racism and social injustice, and each of this has rocked the nation to its core and left us with more questions than answers about our own behavior. You were talking about how the current crises in our culture have sort of called into question all the answers that we had about life. Well, actually, that's a pretty good thing. Disconcerting, of course, because it undermines our sense of security and our sense of control. But we need to be questioning our relationship to the environment. We need to be questioning our relationship to minorities. We need to be questioning our institutions and our political system. So I, I always think questions are better than answers. And underneath all of this is really a, kind of a, a summons to a larger accountability. I have this question, is, is America going to grow up and be accountable for its history, be accountable for its economic policies, and be accountable for the vast divisions that lie between so many of our people? I see it as an enormous invitation and a threatening invitation, but perhaps history is making it necessary for us. The truth is, most of the moments where we grew most were moments out of conflict, perhaps loss, even crisis, perhaps suffering. There's an old medieval saying that the that suffering's the fastest horse to completion, and not that we want it or invite it, but it still still happens. And I think in our own time, the bankruptcy of the things you've mentioned, materialism, hedonism, narcissism, and so forth, is so patently obvious. That necessarily leads us to questions like, well, what really does matter? What abides amid all of these changes and so forth? And I consider this a healthy shakeup, albeit an uncomfortable one, in which people are invited to consider what really matters to them. In your new book, you say that literature can help us cope, and I'd like to know how you came to that conclusion. Well, first of all, literature represents an effort to explore what's going on inside a person from the beginning. I mean, in a sense, the first psychologists are our artists. They, in some way, engage the images that emerge from their own depths and dialogue with them and produce some kind of conversation, whether it's in painting or music or writing, that allows us to gain some kind of access to what's going on inside. Jung said once he was swarming with the materials of the unconscious in his own midlife crisis, 
And he said, until I could grab hold of an image that emerged from the depths, I, I couldn't dialogue with it. I couldn't make it conscious. So he said that the image was the key, the point of entry, the aperture into some understanding of what was going on inside of me. And so it is with all of the great arts and, and in particular literature as well. Well, how do you think literature gives us a better understanding of the different cycles of history? Well, absolutely. If you want to know what's happening in today's headlines, frankly, you can you can read it in the ancient scriptures, you can read it in the Greek tragedies, you can read it in the myths of ancient peoples, because human nature has not changed at all. Technologies change, social structures have changed, and values have changed. But human psyche is very much the same. Jung said, if you really want to know what's going on in the unconscious, you examine myths. And again, myth is the sort of conscious expression of the energies and the formative sources that are arising from within people. So we can say that so many things that happen in our time are shocking, but they shouldn't be surprising if, if one is a, a student of, of history. Well, you make Sophocles come wonderfully alive in your latest book, and you focus on Antigone. And I'm wondering why you feel her story has a great message for us today. Well, she was a person who was caught between two profound value commitments. As many of your listeners will recall, she was caught between a loyalty to her brother, her family, to the gods, and a loyalty to the state. We'd like to feel that we're loyal and contributing citizens, but we also are people of individualized values. When her brother's in rebellion against the established order, as embodied by King Creon, and is killed, she has the very understandable idea that she's going to bury her brother according to the appropriate rights when in fact he's been considered an enemy of the state. She's told, in a sense, you have to choose what your highest value is. Those are painful and difficult choices, and, and in fact, she literally pays with her life in that uh, play, as we know. This is the kind of decision that people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to make, too. He had, his, on the one hand, his pacifism and Christian values to defend, and on the other hand, he was living in the Nazi regime. What is my highest calling in circumstances like that? Well, I'm thinking another immediate example is all the walls of mothers putting their lives on the line yeah. to demonstrate for Black Lives Matter and to demonstrate for racial equality. There's a very strong Antigone sense when you look at these walls of women in the evening mm -hmm. news. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I have to say I've been deeply moved by that because you're right. They're putting their bodies on their line, their well-being. They're also bearing witness to the fact that sometimes you have to stand for a value and you have to pay a price. And if you're not willing to do that, it's not much of a value or maybe you're not much of a person. What I loved reading about was with the fathers who showed up to protect them with the leaf blowers. If yes. anybody released any tear gas, they were going to blow it away. That was a wonderful circle of protection that formed around yes. them saying, we understand your protest and we're here to support yes. you. Well, you could also call that American ingenuity, really. <laughs> well, I want to turn next to Hamlet, because you talk about him as the, the guy who's stuck between fight or flight. His main setting mm -hmm. is on freeze. He can't make a decision. How do we experience Hamlet's emotional stuckness today? Well, you know, it's been argued, and I would concur with this, that Hamlet is perhaps the first truly modern character in Western literature. And the reason being that Hamlet 
He knows that his serious summons by the Danish state and his own morality is to avenge his father's murder, and he would be approved for doing that. And on the other hand, he's blocked by forces within that he doesn't fully understand. The reason Hamlet is so modern is he understands, I am my own problem. He even says, till my resolution is sicklied over with a pale cast of thought and lose the name of action. Now, that's a perfect description of a complex. We have an intention, but something invisible reaches up and shuts us down. We all have stuck places, places where to move forward causes an unacceptable level of anxiety, which has the power to, to veto our forward motion. So he's a person who understands that he can't appeal to others. He can't appeal to the gods. He has to figure it out for himself. And in the end, he has to sort of push through the dilemma and act. Antigone is caught between two outer value systems. He's caught between two dueling complexes, if you will. Therefore, he's subject, as you know, of so many psychological uh, theories through the years, including Ernest Jones, one of the disciples of Freud, who wrote a very interesting book on Hamlet and Oedipus. That's a story in itself. Hamlet is a predecessor to the modern individual who says, I, I know what I need to do, but for reasons I don't know, I can't do it. And we all have that issue within us. I'm wondering how that's playing out right now during the pandemic. We all feel called to do something, and yet there is some psychic numbing or personal exhaustion that is saying, wait, wait and see what happens next. Wait before you act. I think this is the first time in American experience since World War II that every household has been touched and every single individual on this continent is in some form of threat. Now, we've had other national events like the disaster of the Challenger, uh, 9-11, but th for many people, it was that thing that happened out there. This is something that touches everyone and, again, has a potential for life or death consequences. I think this has been a real call to awareness. What we've seen here is an elusive enemy who slips away from all of our assumptions and instruments and a bankruptcy of our system. Rather than being the world leader, we have managed this very poorly. And I, I think it's, it's an occasion for people reframing their sense of self and world and reframing our national story. I mean, all of these experiences we're talking about, I think, are humbling to the American culture, and, and, and that's a good thing, because there's a little too much rah-rah and little accountability for what really does work in our country. The other piece of that, of course, is the enforced isolation. I mean, I've just finished eight hours of analysis with folks, and the number one topic for the last five months, is, as you might well expect, the, the difficulties of coping with economic worries and feelings of boredom and listlessness and drift and malaise, floating depressions and so forth. In a new way, I think more and more Americans are invited to a conversation with their own souls, and it's not necessarily a healthy relationship. This is a culture that prides itself on its distractions. And a lot of those distractions, like sports events, you know, the picnics and family reunions and travel, 
are now constricted. And so more and more folks have had to find their own resources. And, and, and there are a large number of people who found new sources of creativity and new sources of activity and interest they wouldn't have known about heretofore. It's almost like we've gone back into a pre-digital age in terms of introversion yes. and solitude mm-hmm. and, and creative sure. space. So that's definitely a plus, even though it's extremely difficult. Yes, yes. And there's an old saying that the cure for loneliness is solitude. In solitude, you are present to yourself, and therefore you're never wholly alone. The real question here is posed by, by Jung, where he said, we all need to find what supports us when nothing supports us. A lot of people have found that their work schedule, their busyness at the office, or, or their what I call plug-ins to family and friends and other activities, once those are removed, that energy inverts as a depression. Now, what are you going to do with it? That's the key. And can you tolerate being with yourself? Well, a lot of this has to do with the smallness of daily life. And mm-hmm. I think the one who addressed that really beautifully was T.S. Eliot, especially in Proof Rock, where mm-hmm. you see a man who longs for meaning, and mm-hmm. yet he feels like his life is slipping away and being measured in teaspoons. Well, most men have lost contact with their souls a long time ago. Trust me, I spent a lot of time in those conversations. And I put it this way in talking with women's groups, imagine three things. First of all, you have to cut away your friends, the people that you really share your intimate life with, about your marriage, your children, your body, your worries. Those people are out of your life forever. Secondly, sever your link to whatever you consider your guidance center, call it your instinct, your intuition, whatever. And thirdly, your worth as a person will depend largely on your proving your productivity and meeting certain abstract standards or goals set by total strangers. Oh, that is such a painful image of a life that most women can't imagine. Well, that's the point. And, and women have said, oh, my God, that's awful. You, how horribly lonely. And the truth is, that is the plight of 90% of men, I would say, even while surrounded by people and even with loving families. Big topic for the 2016 election was men who work in the mines and men who work with their yeah. hands. And That's I'm right. worried that we have lost respect for men who fix, repair, and build things. I, and I that agree. we've been overvaluing the abstract thinking function. We've moved predominantly into education, healthcare, which are important, and of course, data processing. And where does that leave the work of hands? And the essential dignity of the person digging the ditch and in the coal mine. My grandfather died in a coal mine as an immigrant. He had no choice in life but to to go get the only job he could take. But there is something about, you're actually right, the work of hands is part of how we connect to nature, to each other. It's part of how people serve their culture, their families. Well, I think that's what Jung got, too, at Bollingen, working in, in stone and building the tower. That's right. And, you know, the tower which he built was without electricity, and he lived there deliberately as a 14th century person with candlelight, and and he would get water from a well and and that sort of thing. He even hated the telephone. He said, notice what a tired it is. You can be involved in a meditation. You can be involved in the deepest conversation with a person. 
the tyrant rings and there you go. As Rilke wrote at the beginning of the century, the world we've created is not much of a home for us. I'm wondering if there are any helpful insights that might apply to dealing with this end of an era. Well, we become prisoners of that to which we are attached. That's the paradox. Jung said encounters with the self, capital S, it's usually felt as a defeat for the ego. Well, what does that mean? The ego is a necessary capacity we have to interface with the external world, but it's also a little tyrant. And it wishes to have what it wants when it wants it. That's where that materialism, hedonism, and narcissism arises. Like, how do I entertain myself and make my life pleasant and so forth, which are not per se federal crimes. But it's that assumption that that's the role of life that makes it harder for people to age and harder for them to deal with change and with loss. The German word for serenity is gelassenheit. That means the condition of having let go. What things do you think we need to be brave enough to let go of as a culture? I would say one of the chief American fantasies is that we're supposed to be happy. Now, I have nothing against happiness, but happiness is a goal. I think ultimately trivializes a person's life. Happiness is a, a momentary experience of being in right relationship to your own soul. When you're doing what is truly right for your soul, not necessarily for the world around you, your own soul, then you're flooded with that feeling called happiness. And happiness rises almost out of the strangest places. For example, I don't enjoy being a therapist and listening to people suffering hour after hour, but I find it profoundly meaningful. I can't imagine doing anything else. So I, I would rather say, you know, meaning is something that's worth committing your life to because it has staying power. And when it doesn't have staying power, all right, then move on and find that which does, because that, that is a, a sure relationship, I think, to, to your own soul. To suffer, the root of suffer, to suffer also means to allow. And if we don't allow the full life and death span of our culture or our individual lives, if we don't allow that into our consciousness, how can we move forward in any meaningful way? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The ego will never be thrilled with death. But on the other hand, as Paul Stevens said, death is the mother of beauty. It's, it's what makes us appreciate what is transient. It's what provides our life with meaning. Because if we weren't mortal, you'd be sort of like the idle rich. There's nothing more to do except kill time. I keep looking at the pandemic as a benefactor in that sense. And I'm wondering if the unconscious doesn't call us to account by giving us an enormous problem, quote unquote, for each generation. I'm thinking of my grandparents who lived through the 1917 epidemic, of my parents who lived through two world wars and the Great Depression and the birth of the atomic bomb. My parents, too, went through the Depression and the war, and anyone who did was profoundly changed. And I think in a good way humbled by that. They didn't take certain things for granted because they realized how provisional and how contingent they really were. And I do think we Americans have, whether we know it or not, we've ridden high in the saddle for a long time here and haven't had to feel accountable for the world and for our own values because there's always tomorrow. You know, <laughs> there's, there's something to be said for optimism 
at the same time, a naive optimism means you ignore the reality of the world around you. So the world around us has come to us. And surprise, surprise, what is not faced inwardly, and as Jung pointed out, will tend to spill into the world, and we will call it, but in some way we've played a role in it. I'm curious what books you're reading and what what stories give you strength right now? I'm starting the Hillary Mantle volumes now on Sir Thomas More. That's a formidable mountain to climb, but I, I, I believe it's going to be valuable because, again, what we see is in different garb, the timelessness of the human psyche. The power of reading is something that I learned as a child because I, I grew up in really impoverished circumstances and my parents were really crushed by that depression and, and lack of education. And so my father was pulled out of eighth grade and sent to work the rest of his life. For me, the teachers and books were my heroes because they opened points of entry into a larger world. I thought there is a larger world and there's some things to see and to explore out there. And I remain deeply grateful to all of them. If you had to give a reason for optimism as we go through this next period of major change, of looking for a new myth for our culture, a new new ethos for our nation, what would you tell people to hang on to? Well, people ask about the future, and I don't think anyone knows about the future. The new myth, the new organizing images will rise from the unconscious at one level. And if they don't, then frankly, we're going to be at the mercy of images that have been created by people in laboratories and uh, computerized programs and, and so forth. The better hope for the future is the, the core resilience of the human spirit. If we do what is right for us, something inside of us supports us. We have elemental systems that nature has given us, and we knew it as children, but because we're tiny, vulnerable, and dependent, we have to trade them off to adapt, and that include the feeling function. We don't choose our feelings, but feelings are qualitative analyses of how our life is going. We can reject our feelings, anesthetize them, ignore them, but they tell us something, and feelings occur before our thoughts occur about them. Secondly, we have energy systems. When you're doing what's right for you, the energy's there. You feel that flow. So in a sense, the key to what really is important for you to pursue is what energizes you. Thirdly, we have dreams that are commenting upon our lives on a daily basis. I'm 80 now, and if you live to be 80, six full years of your life will have been spent dreaming. Think of that. That's an extraordinary amount of activity in the psyche. Nature doesn't waste energy. I think part of that is assimilating the magnitude of, of data and, and stimuli that come to us on a daily basis. Part of it, for sure, is our own larger self reflecting upon our life and commenting. If you pay attention, it can be a profoundly meaningful engagement. And most important is this issue of meaning, which is unique to each of us. You can't trade it for somebody else's meaning. You have to find what really your life is asking of you and engage in some kind of conversation. I've often said to people in therapy, this is not about pathology. This is about a deepened conversation around the meaning of your life journey. And that, that will be the most interesting conversation you have in your lifetime. And out of that comes the quality of your relationship to other people. And 
out of that comes community and culture and a national conscience. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a paradox here that no relationship with any other, whether it's an intimate relationship or a relationship with a, a group of people, can be any more evolved than I'm in relationship to, to myself. So where I'm stuck, where Hamlet's stuck, you know, where Prufrock is stuck, my relations will be stuck. You're talking about an inner ecology, that if we can learn how to be stewards of our own psyches, we can be better stewards of the culture. That's right. And again, thinking about the sequestering experience, uh, many people have been invited to that in a new way because they don't have the distractions. Blaise Pascal said in the 17th century, the chief problem for humanity is people's inability to sit with themselves for very long in their own private chamber. Amen. And, And that's extraordinary. And if I can't tolerate myself, how can I tolerate someone else? That certainly is a prescription for dealing with the divisiveness that we see projected out into the world on a daily basis. We all know, too. What I want to deplore in myself or I want to uh, deny in myself, I'll be looking for in my neighbor. <laughs> That's an old idea, the projection of, of my shadow onto others. Another element to our divisiveness, though, is there have been major dislocations and changes in in our economic structures. And many people feel, and I have deep sympathy for this, the future does not include them. On the other hand, I also understand that all of us, to some degree, we might say we want things to change, but when change comes, it unsettles the ego's security agenda very easily. The future belongs to those who can move with those changes and not against them. Thank you for this beautiful description of what's ahead and how we can begin to cope with it and feel more comfortable within ourselves as we do. Is there anything else you'd like to add? The first half of life, we all have to sort of deal with what does the world want of me and can I develop enough ego strength and resources to deal with it? And the second half is really a different question. And that is, what is the soul wanting of me? What is wanting to come through me into the world? And that's not about being comfortable. And that's not about fitting in. It's about serving something that makes your life worth the journey. And if we don't do that, then somehow that whole journey has been sabotaged on behalf of fitting in or our ego comforts. And however understandable they may be, That's a terrible deformation. Jung put it this way. He said, our job's not to fit in. He said, it's to be eccentric. It's not to fit in because Uh. if you fit in too easily, you have had to sort of hone away the edges that make you you. And it's not an adolescent sense of rebellion. It's more about your peculiarities are part of what brings the richness back to the world. I really appreciate your discussion today. It's been a lively conversation. 